Hi, and welcome to the podcast, Galactic Heartbeats, where we talk about aliens, love, and literature. I'm Bright Star. I'm Dr. Radiant, and this week we are going to discuss something in the water. Yeah, the water aspect of what we're learning about unidentified anomalous phenomenon, which was previously called unidentified aerial phenomenon. But when they realized there's actually a water element to what we're seeing as well, we need the name to encapture the whole thing. So they changed it from aerial to anomalous to account for the water. What's exciting to me about this specific piece of information is that when you look at the history of words and how they develop, um, significant terminology changes when a significant um, um, drop of knowledge hits society as a large. Um, And so a lot of words shift to accommodate this new growth in knowledge. And I think that's what we are seeing from graduating from UFO to UAPs. Exactly. So today's episode, I'm talking about a situation between the Pan American airliners and um, some golden coins, actually red coins, which is happens to be over the water. And then we're going to have a guest share her experience with something unidentified in the water. So to get us started, um, talking about the Pan American pilots, Nash and Fortenberry. Have you ever heard of them, Dr. Radiant? Um, I've heard about them this week when your obsession of them quite escalated. (laughs) But before that, no, I have not heard of them. <laughs> cool. Um, so this this article is from True Magazine, October 1952, which already it's like feels like propaganda because it's called True. And so you're like, uh, are you sure it's true? But maybe it is true. There is a a uh, U.S. like Air Force official record of this incident of these two pilots made their account known and they were interviewed by the uh, Air Force. So it there is a record of this besides True Magazine. <laughs> but I really like this record because it is written by the two pilots, um, First Officer William B. Nash and second officer, William H. Fortenberry. Man, two Williams. <laughs> William squared. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we got William and Bill here. And what what drew you in to this story? Like, what? how did you find it in the first place? Well, I was looking for a story that happened over the Chesapeake Bay because 
I started researching like other things in the water and there is Chessie, the Chesapeake Bay version of the Loch Ness Monster. And so I was trying to learn about that, but there wasn't much I was finding as interesting as this story that came up, which was a UAP situation right above the Chesapeake Bay, which is very large. Um, and these pilots are flying from New York to Miami. And right when they're over that area of water is where these discs were seen. And so I kind of went in that direction more. Okay. Mm -hmm. I just love like Bright Star printed out a bunch of hard copies. Um, and it's so funny because we have it all kind of spread out their story. We flew above flying saucers and it's very, um, sensual to like have like papers to feel again. Um, I've gotten so used to just digital copies and there is a coldness a bit to it. Um, and I don't know if that's just from like um, the era that I grew up in and if like those who grew up reading it off of the screen will find like a warmness to it and a nostalgia. So that's just like an interesting, um, just excited by this like hard copy here. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel like intimidated by the printouts I have here splayed about because it feels like I'm in like a ninth grade like English class where I like kind of know the material but um, and I want to like read the whole thing out loud but that's not what you're supposed to do so um, <laughs> um, yeah so I'm ready to get started I am too let's dive into this story so we have William Squared um, they wrote this story for True Magazine, and they're flying where? Like, over the Chesapeake Bay? Yeah. Okay. When did they fly over? 1952, and I believe it was in summer, uh, which seems to be a pattern with the Chesapeake Bay, I've noticed. In all of the articles, they're, they're generally in June or July. Um... So they're flying, and what they come upon is these red coins that are glowing. And they just sort of appear. They say it was about 12 seconds that they calculated. First, there's, there's about, is it six? I think six of them. And they're going in a, in a line, and they're like flat. So it's like if you were to put a coin on the ground and like, flick it you know like they're flat just like a regular spaceship we see right and then all of a sudden they go up like they're like whoop, and they're on their side and so that's like it's almost like they'd be rolling if they were coins right and then they change direction 30 degrees a sharp sharp turn and they're flat again and they head 
in a different direction and then two more follow them like catch up to them so it's this like sharp v shape and um they noticed a correlation between the brightness of the red glowing coin and speed which i thought was super interesting because it's almost like they were getting dimmer when they are building up speed and then when they blast it's like the light is super bright yeah this the diagram that we have out in front of us is very um you know Brightstar came to me with this story earlier this week, and we've been talking about it, you know, frequently in this past week. And every time I ask them to describe this particular scene of the red coins and the 30 degree angle they're making, I could not fathom it in my brain. I kept asking, like, can you repeat it again? And like listening so intently and just being like, how does that even work? Um, and now looking at this like diagram, it's just, you're like, whoa, how are they maneuvering their spaceship, their aircraft, their um, ship, their saucer in this way? In the, in how, do, how are they even like mimicking or manipulating like physics and gravity? Because the coins are going, you can see very quickly. And then... The 30 degree angle is so, so sharp that it feels like they should just like collide out of the sky almost, but instead they stop and then like zip forward again. In this article that they wrote, they say the only way I can describe it is a bouncing ball, like a ball bouncing off a wall, ricocheting off a wall. And so that was what they were doing right after they saw it they immediately start documenting like they start taking calculations um they use a computer that is called what is it called um the dalton mark 7 computer thank you dr radiant the dalton mark 7 computer was in action like i love thinking about this how these guys are just like all right well let's calculate that let's do the math because that is a very admirable trait to have after seeing such a wild occurrence so this diagram it shows the saucer's maneuver in stages so it's it's a really i'm we're gonna have to post this for sure um so here's what they wrote. We judged that the object's diameter to be a little larger than a DC-3 wing spread would appear to be, about 100 feet. At their altitude, which we estimate at slightly more than a mile below us, or about 2,000 feet above ground level. That is not very high off ground level. No, I think I need to revisit that map on what was the website um, that showed all the different like very like levels of the sky and where aircraft fly. And this is at that level where I don't I feel like um, I imagine one of those small two person planes would be flying at 
at that altitude. And so to imagine like these ricocheting saucer space balls, <laughs> like that's their, their path um, flying that low. And um, we're still not sure as a society if, if these things are real is quite, quite something. So here's about this Dalton Mark 7 computer. So back in the cockpit, we discussed and formulated a quick report. We called the Norfolk radio as we passed over it, gave our position according to routine, and upon receiving confirmation of that message, added a second which we requested be forwarded to the military. And this is the quote. Two pilots of this flight observed eight unidentified objects vicinity Langley Field. Estimate speed in excess of 1,000 miles per hour. Altitude estimated 2,000 feet. The captain came forward and was told of the incident and the message. He took over while we went to work figuring and writing notes on what we had seen. With a Dalton Mark 7 computer, a kind of pivoting calculator, we swung the azimuth from the longitudinal axis of the airplane to the saucer's angle of approach toward the nose. As well as we could remember it, then did the same for their angle and departure. We found the difference was only about 30 degrees. Therefore, they had made a 150 degree change of course almost instantaneously. The G-force produced in such a turn we couldn't begin to figure, of course, if we had known how, for it would depend on duration and speed, and there was where we really ran into something. Then they get into more of the math, and they calculate the seconds and the miles, and um, this is my favorite part. He says, a while later, while we were still discussing the matter, the lights of a northbound four-engined airliner came into view on a course about 1,000 feet above us. If any normal happening could have increased the effect of our night's experience on us, it was that commonplace event. Ordinarily, the head-on approach of two airliners, their closing speed would be 500 to 550 miles per hour. Seems pretty brisk. This night, the oncoming plane seemed to be standing still after the streaking speed of the saucers. It's so hard to... I'm, I just really have a difficult time visualizing this because it's not something that ordinarily happens in our sky. And it is technology that we are not familiar with. Um, and just hearing these numbers, it just makes me think about something that um, I believe these pilots said, as well as I've heard other pilots um, ruminate on this question of, are these <clears throat> UAPs piloted by a being inside? And if so, how are they withstanding the power and the quickness of their turns, of the craft's turns, um, or are they being operated remotely? Um, and the, 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 this is a really important question, I think, um, because it also can determine 
if a creature is surviving that power, what what is their biological makeup? Like that leads to those questions. If the aircrafts are being controlled remotely, it leads to the question of what um, intelligent society has created technology sophisticated enough to operate in this way and to be completely controlled remotely. Yeah, and when they landed it in Miami, shortly after midnight, uh, they entered the operations office and they found filed um, from their New York dispatcher a copy of the saucer message they had transmitted through Norfolk with an addition. And the addition says, advise crew five jets were in area at the time. That doesn't really line up. Like the number five. Nope. It was more than five. They weren't jet shaped. They were coin shaped. And, um, you know, it was easy for them in the fifties to say, you saw a mirage. Mm. Yeah. You, there was five jets. You're crazy. You know, um, you're tired. You're flying too much. It's night. But they saw what they saw. And that is a really good question. Like, is it remote controlled? Or is it beings in there? I think it's, it's plausible it could be either. I mean, it's easier for me to think about someone remote controlling it. Because we are remote controlling stuff now. Um, but it would have to be a secret program we have no evidence of <laughs> if it was humans. You know, and that's what they say in this article too. They, they said, if this were our intelligence, there would have to be some kind of evidence of, of getting that far. Like, we would have seen maybe people working on things that even came close to what those are doing. So the water element here is it's really just above the water, right? These aren't showing us any trans medium, right? But we don't know. Maybe they came right out of the water. I mean, it seems pretty, pretty like a good shape to go through water. You could slice through water. Um, and water is really buoyant, so it's quite different than the, the gravity. And so these discs to me look like very transmedium. They could go in either water or air. Um, so yeah. I'm having this kind of, um, teacher brain moment hearing about this disc-like um, shape being able to be in air and water. Um, I'm thinking of the um, sink or float game you play in water and how you learn with whoever you're doing that with um, that 
more kind of like longer, less heavy objects like a disc um, bounce up through the water very quickly. Like you can push them all the way down. They'll kind of like be there and they'll just generally like buoyant back up. Um, whereas where you put something more rectangular or longer, like a ship, um, it takes a long time to fill with water. It sinks very slowly. Um, a jet engine, which kind of plane, which is like oblong with like wings sticking out again, sinks very weirdly and sometimes breaks apart. Um, so it's just, it's cool to think of that shape just seamlessly, moving through the air and, and water, which we know that shape does. Yeah. So now it's time to make our transition from the air into the water. Where did the disc come before it was seen in the air above the water? We have a guest on who saw something in the same waters, the Severn River, which is a river that flows into and out of the Chesapeake Bay. Her name is Dee, and she's also my family member, I would say, and now Dr. Radiant's family member. Um, she's my niece's mom so let's give her a call hello what's up d hey welcome to galactic heartbeats yes thank you for having me we got our mics on we're ready to re ready to roll <laughs> <laughs> Yes, thank you for telling us your story. Um, I am so excited about this story because it happens on a river that I grew up jumping into, the Severn River. Mm -hmm. And I've only jumped into it on a hot summer day. And yes, I have had jellyfish touch my feet. Yes, I have gotten a little bite by a crab, but never, <laughs> never have I ever seen what you've seen in the Severn River. I know. It still freaks me out to this day. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And how many? It was like 2011, you said? Oh. No, it was 2001. Okay, so many, <laughs> many years ago. Yes. 2001, was... you remember it clear as day, and you were you were with some friends, who, and one of them you just recently connected with, who also, yep. also remembers it, exactly. Exactly the same story. I just, I wanted to message her and say, hey, remember that night? And she remembered it so clearly. Mm-hmm. And so so I think you said it was like uh it was Severn River, two thousand one, and the name of the dock was Hollywood. <clears throat> yep. In Severna Park, Maryland. And how big was the the river? 
Oh, it was pretty big. It was you couldn't really swim across it, so it was a big gap um, from one side to the other. So it was pretty. It was a pretty big um, area where I saw the sighting. And does the the Severn River like feed into a larger body of water? I think it goes into um, the Chesapeake. It's yeah. like the Chesapeake. There's the Magathy. There's a lot of water right there. Okay. But wow. um, it definitely flows into something. <laughs> yeah, it flows into the Chesapeake Bay. It's there's a lot of inlets of water and yeah. a giant, giant river. So yeah, mm -hmm. so take us back to that night. It was a cold night, right? Oh, it was cold. So we were about 12, 13 years old and we just wanted to go for a walk and it was dark out. And, um, I remember it was cold cause we all had our jackets on and we just walked down to the little community beach. And, um, when we got down there, it was real dark and there was only like one light on, on the dock, but the moon was shining so bright and the moon was the light that we could see. So it, we were just hanging out and we just happened to look and we saw something in the water and it looked like it was swimming backwards, trying to like keep its head above the water. And, um, it was definitely splashing and it was definitely not a human. Ooh. So like what made you know it was definitely not a human? Well, it was cold. No one was yelling help. It was quiet, but we mm. all saw it. And it was kind of like a grayish tan color. And I could see it clearly, even though there was a big gap, you could definitely see the creature in the middle splashing around, <laughs> looking like it was trying to swim. And um, no one was yelling help. So I knew it wasn't a human. Mm. Mm -hmm. was the body like slick and smooth or like more like scaly like could you see any of those details i think it was more um it was more like a bony skinny type of creature i could oh, definitely wow. tell the color and i could tell that it wasn't like an animal or a bird or a fish or anything like that i could definitely tell it was like a skinny bony type of creature in the water and we all saw it and the moon was so bright it was just shining right on it so it was like we could see it Ooh. oh my gosh and it was like bigger you like the arms maybe were bigger were the arms bigger than a human arm they're probably a little bit longer it definitely wasn't a small creature it was definitely mm -hmm. a size like a six foot type of length and the yeah. arms weren't short because it was how the splashes were it was big enough to make a splash yeah and we noticed it splashing that's why we looked over there and um Ooh. it definitely was not small and so what was like, you guys were all there together as a group. Like, what was your, all your reactions? Like, were you scared? Were you kind of like, we got to go? Well, as soon as we all saw it, we didn't stick around. I mean, we were 
13 years old. We were scared. So as soon as we saw it, we all put our eyes on it. And it didn't see us because it didn't like, it was just doing its thing. But as soon (laughs) as we saw it, we all ran. We ran up these old stone stairs. The boy I was with, he scraped his knee. He was bleeding. We were just spooked. Dude, I would have been spooked too. Same. Oh my God. I know. And I remember it clear as day. It was something in that water and it definitely wasn't human. I think it was probably like on the verge of drowning because of how it was flailing backwards, trying to keep his head above. And I wish to this day we stayed and saw the full thing, but we were young kids. We just ran. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no way you think a human would even attempt to cross that river. Oh, no. And especially how it was moving. It wasn't trying to get to the dock. Like mm-hmm. it was staying in the middle. So mm-hmm. a human, your instinct is if his, you know, you would start swimming to the dock and, you know, yeah. so I knew it wasn't a human. Hmm. You know, we've heard about this like Chessy, Chesapeake Bay Loch Ness monster, but it wasn't that. No, I really believe it was some kind of an alien creature because just of how it was, the color, how it looked, it was bony, skinny. I really do believe it was an alien style. Yeah creature i really like, do there's a lot of reports of alien activity coming out of the chesapeake bay um you know we've heard of this pilot seeing these like like glowing discs right above the chesapeake bay and so you know i don't know if he he fell out of a ship or he <laughs> like was part of an underground like underwater base like i don't know why an alien would maybe he was just floating swimming taking a moonlit swim i mean i like a good moonlit bath every once in a while too yeah that does sound nice but it was freezing that night Mm. i don't know if it was my guess i think it fell from (laughs) up above like a kind of like aircraft of some sort yes Okay. I think it was more from above because, um, like, he was kind of left because there was no one else around. Like, it was just the one thing in there, and it was, like, kind of drowning. So, I feel like if it was a water, he would be a professional swimmer. (laughs) (laughs) Dang. Uh, Michael Phelps. Oh, my God. What's he doing out there? I mean... We hear about these crafts, like, making these crazy sharp turns Mm -hmm. that, like, no human could ever survive. And so I kind of wonder, like, maybe sometimes aliens can't survive them either. And sometimes there's mishaps. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. We can't say they're invincible. Like, I'm sure they're prone to error as, like, we all are. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I wish I saw more, but I know what I saw. They all saw the same thing, and it was something in that water mm. that night in 2001. Wow. And it Thank was you. not a human body. 
Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, we appreciate you coming on. It's an incredible story. And, and I'm so, I mean, we're so lucky to, to hear it and share it with our listeners. So thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, stay out of those waters down there in the hun, all right? Oh, I will now. <laughs> Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye. All right, we are back on with Dr. Radiant and Bright Star. Um, thank you so much to Dee for sharing that incredible story. Um and just the imagery of this being swimming backwards in the middle of this very large river, it just, it makes you really think about why is it in this body of river so close to the Chesapeake Bay where there's been a large amount of UAP sightings. Um, and that is craft that again, go in the water and the air. Um, you know, is this creature having a lovely night swim? I mean, who doesn't love a little, um, nighttime swim by yourself? Like gorgeous recentering. We don't know how they might swim. It might be doing the backstroke. Sometimes my backstroke looks a little strange and I was on swim team. So I think it's a very plausible, um, I think it's really, they saw an alien that night. Um, especially when I find that stories from teens and children, I just find more, like, there's no adult nonsense. Like, the propaganda hasn't quite sunk in for as long, <laughs> you know? Um, I think a lot of, like, first stories from children and teens are just, are so spot on in a way that like adult stories tend to not be. Yeah. I love to think about this alien like float taking a nighttime float. I hope they do. I hope they can. And the Severn river in the middle of the night would be a perfect place because it's cold. So humans won't be there in the water and it's kind of just like a quiet river in a sleepy suburban town so I like to think of that we're coming to the end of this episode and we have a poem to read and this one is called for well it's called to learn from animal being as our cat tries to <laughs> get inside the computer right now. Uh, so this one is for the cats, Oscar, Oshin, and especially for Mr. Bun Bun, little bunny boy, Buns, Argo. We had to say goodbye to our dear Bun yesterday. Was it two days ago? been in the time warp that is grief but really seeing his lovely legacy live on in our home he was such a creature and he taught our other cats how to be and so 
I want to read this poem for Argo. It's called To Learn from Animal Being by John O'Donohue. Nearer to the earth's heart, deeper within its silence, animals know this world in a way we never will. We who are ever distanced and distracted by the parade of bright, windows thought opens. Their seamless presence is not fractured thus. Stranded between time, gone and time emerging, we manage seldom to be where we are. Whereas they are always looking out from the here and now. May we learn to return and rest in the beauty of animal being. Learn to lean low, leave our locked minds, and with freed senses feel the earth breathing with us. May we enter into lightness of spirit and slip frequently into the feel of the wild. Let the clear silence of our animal being cleanse our hearts of corrosive words. May we learn to walk upon the earth with all their confidence and clear-eyed stillness so that our minds might be baptized in the name of the wind and the light and the rain. That's for our Argo and for all those that have um, experienced this animal being love and um, is it Amnakara? Uh, Anamakara soulmate friendship with an animal being. Um, Thank you for listening to this week's Galactic Heartbeats. I'm Dr. Radiant. I'm Bright Star. Special thanks to Mothrock for the soundscapes, D for the story in the Chesapeake Bay. Shout out to the water. Shout out to the aliens in the water. Special thanks to Argo, Bunny Boy, Buns, John O. Donahue, and Octavia Butler.